1: Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This week, I'm joined by Michael McMullen once again. And at this time, we're talking about players we've interviewed. It's quite a free-form uh, format, this one. We're just sort of yakking, really, about players we've interviewed, what we've learned from interviewing players, the best players to speak to, and uh, I guess what journalists are looking for when they interview snooker players. So, the media <laughs> mm. discussed... Well, we were just saying before we came on, we we're going to start by... Talking about our first player interviews yeah. Mine was 20 years ago now It was at the Welsh Open, 1998 And I was working then for the WPBSA Not something I mention very often, but I was And I just started there And uh, I went over his first tournament I suppose I went to really In an official capacity And there was a young player who was doing well called Paul Hunter mm. um, we would won a couple of matches And he was seen as sort of a rising star And the Bruce, who was my boss, said Why don't you go and interview him? Um, which was difficult because I hadn't interviewed a player before and Paul hadn't really been interviewed that much before and he he was didn't know and the thing is in those days now there's like media training and all that and no one in those days told anyone how to do it Um, including the journalists including the 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 journalists yeah yeah. so it was quite difficult he was very shy at the time just because he'd never I think he, he felt a little intimidated maybe by just you know, the Germans coming and asking him questions And it wasn't great He, of course, in the end and not very, Didn't take him very long to get really good with the press Really, really good And it was always a pleasure to interview But, um, yeah, I suppose it was We were both sort of learning how to do it, in a way um, How did it go? It went, I mean, it went okay You know, I didn't get loads out of him But that was partly my fault I'm not I'm not blaming him at all um, But, yeah, I think the point about this And maybe we'll come on to this during the, the podcast Is Everyone's different Every player's different Some players I think get it They understand what journalists are after Which is a decent story And that doesn't mean a bad story It means a story Other players come in and just want to talk you through every shot they played Which frankly no one cares about
0: yeah. you know. So, uh, so that was my sort of uh, baptism of fire well, the, like, the thing about that is the players must have been queuing up to get interviews Be, be interviewed by you after that Because of course... He won that tournament.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily take any of the credit for that. But uh, yeah, he did. Yeah, and, and of course, the point with that was because he did so well and won that tournament and became a, a winner, he then got used to being interviewed. Yeah, and therefore, after that, he, you know, he was great. He was really, really brilliant, Paul. Always. Um, so that was my, that mm. was my first first time.
0: Well, I started with probably the best player you could possibly start with, Ken Dority, yeah. because he's just so good to deal with. Yeah. And I mean, I was a student at the time. It was nineteen ninety six. And we had a college radio station and it happened it was like a one week thing that you did in your final year and it happened to be the week of the Irish Masters. Mm. So I thought wouldn't it be great to get Ken Doherty <clears throat> on and, you know, record an interview and then run it during the Irish Masters? And unbelievably when you think about it, I mean I was just some student and I could have been absolutely anybody, but I rang I think they were called Q Masters at the time yes. in Doyle Stable, changed their name a number of times and they just gave me Ken's phone number. <laughs> and I yeah. rang him up and he was like, Yeah, no problem at all, come round my house on Sunday. <laughs> and I thought, Wow, this journalism's easy, isn't it? I can honestly tell you that's the last time I was ever invited to a snooker player's house. Mm. Um, But I went round on a Sunday afternoon and it was about one o'clock and his mum answered the door, uh, who sadly departed Mm. last year, and um, she said he wasn't up yet.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This is such a Ken story. Everything about this is a Ken Doherty story. Yeah, no,
0: absolutely. But I actually, um, while I was waiting, I think it was about an hour before he Mm. finally came downstairs and his mum gave me tea and scones and she was telling (laughs) me about some French woman who had come to the house to interview Ken not long before that. Now... Who has ever heard of a French snooker yeah. journalist? Yeah. And she was saying how uh, she was quite scantily dressed and she was asking her why she hadn't put her skirt on. And I mean, this was all before I'd even had the interview. I thought this interviewing thing's fantastic. Yeah. You, get, you get this entertainment. Yeah. But then the thing was, of course, this was the first time I'd used this this radio recording equipment. Mm. So I started asking Ken uh, you know, my first question and then thought, this isn't recording, is it? I said, sorry, Ken, I'm going to have to stop there. So Now, it was actually working perfectly. Right. Um, he actually seemed to be more comfortable with the equipment than I was but actually if there's a tape of that in existence which I doubt there is the tape actually starts with me asking Ken the same opening question about four times because it was only about the fourth time that I became in any way convinced it was actually recording But uh, yeah, that was my starting point. But you know, what a great way to start! Yeah. You know, some people, and more likely in other sports, really might think, "Oh, this guy's just a student." You know, I'll have a bit of fun with him, and Well, they uh, certainly. I mean, the, yeah. the idea
1: of the idea of let's,
0: who's sort of equivalent in the world of tennis? It wouldn't be a Federer
1: or but someone not Krejcik. too far off that. Yeah, say Crichech because he yeah. won Wimbledon around yeah. that time. The idea that you a
0: that you would get his number off his manager, unbelievable. Uh, B to be invited around his house, yeah, which is unthinkable. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. But you know, there, there was none of this kind of, oh, you know, I don't to you know, I don't know, make fun of this guy yeah. or anything like that. I mean, Ken just was, you know, as he always is, was just so respectful and mm. so good. And and actually spoke to me like he probably would to any other, mm. uh, you know, a much more experienced journalist. So I mean, that that was that was a great way to start. If it had gone, you know, the opposite <laughs> direction, you could be scared off. Yeah. But uh, you know, that certainly gave me the, the taste for more, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I mean, I interviewed Ken a lot because mm. I did a lot of the Irish papers, and you know, win or lose, he was always he would always answer in sentences. If you know what I mean. Yes, he absolutely. would actually give you an answer, and he wouldn't hide the fact he was disappointed. Uh, when he lost It wouldn't just be sort of platitudes He would he would speak honestly But he would speak And that's the point You know, if you're looking for quotes A, you want them to say something And B, it's got to be something meaningful You can't yeah. just be literally anything It's got to be something that, that you can use And him and Fergal as well Fergal O'Brien You know, always very very good And I think that's You know, you're either like that or you're not But I do think And of course Ken's gone on to work in the media He was one of those players as I was saying at the start I think he always understood
0: What the media actually wanted. He spent a lot of time in the press room, which maybe may helped. He got to know the journalists. Well, even that day in '96, I remember him saying, he was asking me, because I was doing the journalism mm. course at the time, and um, he was asking me all about it, and he was saying, oh, yeah, no, later on in life, I'd love to be involved in media. And of course, he does his own sports radio show. Mm. I don't know how many people outside Ireland know about that, mm. but on... On a Dublin radio station, on I don't know, is it Saturday or Sunday mornings? But he does say, and it's not snooker by any means. Like there's some snooker on it, but it's uh, it's all sports really. So he, he's on the other side mm-hmm. of it now. But one thing I really learned, and I'm sure you found this too, you know, you'd only ever really seen snooker players being interviewed on television yeah. before, and it's it's a bit more formal setup. Yeah, yeah. But a press conference, particularly you know, which is mostly print guys, or certainly was in those days, it's so informal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really is just like a chat. And you get much better stuff there, and it took me a while to get my head around that because you'd go in and you'd see the likes of Phil and John D and Trevor Baxter and Clive. These guys have been around for years, and it was just so casual with the mm. players, and uh, I just couldn't get my head around that for a while actually. But of course, you know, you get far better stuff uh, by talking to players that way, and you know, at that time. Uh, you know, it was you know, a regular group who went to every tournament mm. and became so familiar with the players. So, I mean, there were, there were no barriers there at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say, you know, it was all better in my day. Actually, correction, I do want to say <laughs> it was all better in my day. It was different because, like you say, yeah. new, because newspapers actually had more power. So, you'd have this little core group of freelancers who would, who would travel the circuit and obviously they'd get to know the players. And also, and this doesn't really happen now, the players would come in the press room a lot and they'd sit in the press room and therefore they'd get to know the journalists. So, that that's sort of any barrier between the two was
0: immediately broken down. I remember seeing Stephen Hendry sitting in a press room one day, as was often the case, he was just reading a paper, and somebody, and I don't even think it was one of the regular press, just went up to him and said, Stephen, can I talk to you about such and such a thing? He just nodded his head. (laughs) Five seconds later, they were already into the interview. Now, again, can you imagine that happening? And, you know, you're talking about the greatest player of all time, you know, in many people's eyes. You know, can you imagine sitting down, you know... Tiger Woods coming into you know a media centre, yeah. you know, reading a paper and Tiger can I have a quick word. Oh yeah, sure man. But that's I mean, the not happen. But that's the that's the, sort of the, the irony in a way that Henry would come in the press room because when he went in the players' room,
1: he would get bothered by friends of players. Yeah. Like yeah. Ronnie made this point about the numpties and and, and what actually what, what one of the things he was saying was that you go to a, one of the qualifiers and all the, the aunties and the uncles and the mm. grannies and all, all come along. They all want to get now selfies then it would have been autographs. And mm. Henry obviously was you know, was trying to like stay focused in the tournament. He wouldn't get that in the press room. There would be, it's sort of almost an unwritten code. If he came in during the interval in a match, he'd sit quietly, read the paper, you wouldn't speak to him. But if it was on a non-match day and he came in, then like you said, it was fair game to go over and say, Stephen, as you're here, would you mind sitting down? And he would he would always do it.
0: Oh yeah, no, very, very obliging. and You know, it just highlights I think the general ordinariness of the top yep. snooker players. Yeah. They're just really, really ordinary people, they're not affected by it. I think that's something to do with the nature of snooker mm. and the sort of mindset you need to have. And you know, you can't be, you know, full of big ideas about yourself yeah. and very, very few of, of even the greatest players, you know, ever have been. And obviously that's made our job a lot easier over the years.
1: Yeah. Although of course I say like on a non match day, Henry very obliging. On a match day, mm-hmm. if he wins, brilliant. If yeah. he loses Oh yeah. Now I mean I'm not gonna roll out the shrewd story again, <laughs> but why don't you why don't you because you were there as well. So yeah. why don't you tell that story from your perspective.
0: So what was it? It was against Drago, wasn't yeah. it? And now you were still the press officer yeah. at the time. Hanging on, yeah. And I can't remember the exact circumstances of the match, but I know like Henry had, had about <clears throat> three hundred chances to win it and Drago had a few flukes. He right? had a few yeah. flukes, yeah. And the crowd were really getting on Drago's yeah. side actually. And then Henry comes in, you can imagine.
1: And it's you know. just after he's lost to Campbell, 9 0 as It's well. just
0: after he's yeah. lost to Campbell, 9 0. It's the same year that Higgins has overtaken him as world yeah. number one. So you can imagine the mood he's in at this stage. He comes in, <laughs> he sits down. I mean, my word, I mean, the atmosphere. And there's was just... a lot of journalists there. There were a lot of journalists, actually, because, you know, snooker was at a real peak in Ireland at the time because it was, you know, mm. Ken, Ken was at his peak. So Henry comes in. And uh, nobody says anything. Mm. But of course, you were the one who had the responsibility yeah. of getting something going. So you said, uh, obviously, it's disappointing, Stephen. And he just turns around and says, shrewd. Yeah. And but it was
1: the contempt, quite
0: rightly, as well. Well, if you think of that, you know, sarcasmometer the comic book guy had in The Simpsons, you know, it's just exploded. Yeah. You know, I mean, it would have just gone through the roof at that stage. And, uh, and after that, a few more people tried questions. I mean, even Phil, who was really good friends yeah. with Henry and yeah. still is. I mean, you know, I was asking him questions and Henry was just, you know, shrugging his shoulders mm-hmm. and just saying absolutely nothing. And literally, shrewd was the only thing. Most of us actually were sitting there with our heads down. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to make eye contact yeah. with you or Henry, <laughs> you know. And I actually, some months later, I, went, uh, I was looking through my, my notes and I'd written down Henry dot dot shrewd. <laughs> and just presumably just to have something to do yeah. to avoid eye contact, I'd actually put quote marks <laughs> around the word shrewd. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I, I never saw... Anything as extreme as that, mm. you know, in snooker or any other sport. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I'd had it earlier in the year when he uh, he was struggling. He'd lost his first match in the Irish Masters. And I asked him something or other and he just basically turned and kind of snapped at me a bit. Yeah. But, do you know what? I, I, think, I don't think either of us really minded that kind of mm. thing because we were huge admirers of Hendry. And we knew that was just part of what he was like. He hated losing, which was why... He won so much And we yeah. just accepted that As part of the package And it was almost a badge of honour To be Hendry's In those days <laughs> <deaths. laughs> Well it was a better story As well for him So totally, one, yeah. one
1: word Than to just trot out Sort of meaningless passages That no one was interested in Yeah, um, And he had earned the right To be severely disappointed As you say Like a great champion He's going to hurt If he's in a bit of a slump yeah. later that year he won the seventh world title yeah. I had a bit more to say then um, he's still talking yeah now um, Steve Davis uh, I was I didn't cover the sort of glory years in the 80s mm. and it's interesting towards the end of his career he was the opposite you couldn't shut him up in press conferences I remember yeah. I, I had to walk out once just because he was going on and on and on and the, I think there were some guys there who, like who didn't cover snooker very regularly and were just delighted to be speaking to Steve Davis and he sort of he's, he's, I've sort of got up and he said I, I don't know if have you you know that sort of thing because it just he just went on and on and on and why not you know again he's, yeah, he's, yeah, he's earned yeah. the right to, to say as much as he liked but I, I guess it, uh, like when you're at the very top also, like you've been interviewed after every match yeah. Win or lose, any tournament You're coming in And I guess after a while And of course it's straight after the match as well you know, yes. You've got no
0: time to collect your thoughts that, that is the thing I mean, it would be better in one sense If you could have half an hour in between Which is actually what happens in other sports Like say in football mm. You know, you don't speak to the players till half an hour after the match uh, in snooker, it's not really possible, and I think a lot of that is because certainly in those days, when you know there was a lot of newspaper coverage, the deadlines were really tight. Obviously, a lot of the matches finished late, so if you had any chance at all of getting it in the paper, you needed to speak to the players straight away. And also, it's not like the players are going back and having a shower in the dressing room, you know, straight after the match. So the obvious time to do it is straight after, and inevitably, players end up saying things that um, that they regret. Uh, Or that they look back on later and say, Well, I didn't really mean that. I probably felt I meant it at the time. Mm. There's a lot of that. It's like Judd Trump at the World Championship last season, you know, when he refused to speak to the press after the match against Rory McLeod. I'm sure 10 minutes later, once he'd cooled down a tiny little bit, he probably regretted that. So, in one sense, it's probably the worst time to talk mm. to players. In another sense, it's a brilliant time because you're far more likely for them to say something extraordinary. But, you know, you talk about Steve there, you've got to remember the difference even, not so much in terms of his, uh, well, not just in terms of his standing. When he was at his uh, peak, he was the most high-profile sportsman I in Britain. Yeah. So, although it was a very different media world, he didn't have Twitter and all the rest of it, you know, if he said anything out of place, mm. it was going to be massive news. And, of course, he had Barry guiding. Mm. Him, hmm. You know, and was very keen that you know there should never be any scandal surrounding him of, of any level whatsoever. So I think maybe that was that was part of it that perhaps later on in his career he was less high profile. The game was slightly less high profile in the media. He had a bit more freedom to say what he wanted. And Steve, you know, a, a bit like Ronnie now, you know, would we'll just go off into all sorts of yeah. topics yeah. in his press conferences. But again, it was great. You got great quotes and great lines. Well, you've uh, you've dropped the Ronnie
1: bomb there. So oh, let's uh, let's <laughs> introduce it. I mean, obviously, you know, there's huge fascination. with with Ronnie and I mean his press conferences you could write several books on them really because then like sometimes it's very much from the heart and very kind of raw and I've seen him I remember at the British Open in Newcastle when he was clearly in the midst of a depression and you you could see it in his face he just looked in a terrible place at other times he'll come and have a laugh and a joke Uh, there's clearly times when he relishes being able to just say what he likes and, and talk um, other times It's difficult to get Something out of him I mean obviously Last season he wasn't Saying anything at one point yeah, to, to the media um,
0: He was singing though.
1: He was singing yeah, yeah. Uh, But I guess all of that Is kind of Ronnie's personality isn't it
0: Yeah I mean It's, it's just so unpredictable You just never know What he's going to Come out with I remember Talking once with a completely straight face about the prospect of getting married to Ray Reardon. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, know, you, know, you can do that now. Yeah, well, you? this is it. You know, back back then it wasn't yeah. even legal. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, but look, if you're going to talk about, you see, this is the difference. You know, with you know a lot of interviews, it's one on one. It's just you and the player. But most interviews with players are actually in a group environment, mm. in a press conference. And of course, there's one Ronnie press conference that I think you know stands out head and shoulders above all the rest. Uh, was the one in Dublin in 2004. Uh, he'd played, it was Ebdon, wasn't it? Yeah. He just played quarterfinals of the Irish Masters and he conceded a frame, 10 reds still on the table. And uh, he came in afterwards and I thought, well, look, you know, he obviously wants to be asked about this. He's looking for a bit of attention. So I'm just going to ask him straight away. And I said, so Ronnie, why did you do that? And he said <laughs> something about, oh, well, you know, I wanted to get off and have a cup of tea and, you know, sometimes you've got to do what you've got to do. <laughs> so I thought, well, you know, I'm going to take him up on this. So I said, But you didn't have to do that. You know, what do you mean you got to do what you got to do? <laughs> yeah. You know, there was nothing about that. So then he said, Yeah, you're you're probably right. And, uh, you know, maybe if I had your head on my shoulders, I'd be a, a 10 times world champion by now. Now, as you pointed out, quite where that would have left me, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, is <laughs> it, 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 another matter. But there was all kinds of stuff there. And he said, Some days you're the bug and some days yeah. you're the windscreen. I mean, one of the great quotes that. Yeah. Um, then he invited us to go on a night out with him in Dublin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was a German guy there who actually asked him to repeat everything slowly so that he could understand yeah, it. Yeah, and bear in mind that it was about a half-hour press conference. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think you got up and walked out of that one as yeah, well. Yeah. Because it was <laughs> something to go up and... Sort of People have got lives to live, here, haven't they? Yeah. You know? They've got things to do. But, but it was like, you know, it wasn't just Ronnie lending to the absurdity. You had the German guy. You had an Irish journalist who... That was the one and only season of a thing called the LG Order yeah. of Merit. One of the Irish journalists asked him, you know... Are you disappointed that this result will affect your chances of winning that? Mm. I mean, it really was. I think you wrote about it in Snooker Scene, snooker scene saying fans of the absurd would greatly yeah. have enjoyed Ronnie's press conference. But he was loving it. He yeah. was actually sitting there kind of smiling and joking all mm-hmm. the way through it. It really was a, just, just an absolutely uh, extraordinary thing. And then, funny enough, having conceded, basically thrown away that match, about an hour later he was on the practice table yeah. next to the press room.
1: No, it was vintage Ronnie But I guess it's another opportunity for someone like him Who's a great crowd pleaser To play to the crowd Because you yeah. say, there were a lot of people there And uh, maybe he, he hadn't enjoyed the match that much But it was an opportunity mm. to, to kind of have a bit of fun And I guess in some ways that's maybe what the players should treat it as Because some, sometimes they come in And clearly they've got no interest at all yeah, <laughs> In speaking yeah, yeah. to anyone But it is part of the job And if they're wondering why they're earning hundreds of
0: thousands a year It's primarily because of the media Because yeah. the media... Showcase the sport. Well, it's totally because yeah. of the media, because if there was no coverage, yeah. you know, there'd be no sponsors, there'd be no prize money. I think a lot of players get that. I mean, you talk to someone like Sean Murphy, mm. he's never grumbled about mm. speaking to the press. And, uh, you know, he actually pointed out that, you know, some of the players who do grumble should take a look at the example of, of Paul Hunter, who we mm. mentioned, who continued to do interviews yeah. and press conferences during the darkest thing you can possibly go yeah. through. Graham Doss, uh, when he had a major illness going on in his family, came in and spoke at the Masters. Mm. And made the effort, and I think you know, I mean, that's, that's so commendable. And players who complain about it should consider well, look, you know, there's a lot worse things could be going on in life mm. than losing a snooker match. Mm.
1: Mark Selby, uh, I think, is an example of. I mean, he now gets interviewed a lot, obviously, as world champion, mm. world number one, but I think he's an example of someone whose maybe personality doesn't come out as much in interviews because yeah. I think he sometimes feels a little bit on edge by it. I don't know, you know, if you see Mark, we at the Championship League at the moment. Backstage, he is kind of the jester, isn't he? He's having, mm. having fun and very nice to everybody. Treats everyone the same. Sure. Maybe he's an example of someone who maybe just closes up a little bit. Mark Williams could be a bit like that as well at times in interviews.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, they're definitely true. Actually, both of those would be the best examples of that. Mm. Um, you know, but again, you know, that they've they've come into a very different environment now. That you know everything gets picked up on, and you know people aren't interested <coughs> now. A lot of people, certainly in media and social media, in uh, you know hearing you make positive comments, they're only interested in. Catching you out, yeah. And you know that's the environment that you know top sports people are dealing in. Mm. Now, Mark is you know probably next to Ronnie the most high-profile mm. player there is, and you know he's all about the snooker. He wants to be out there winning matches. He doesn't want to do anything. He's got nothing to gain by saying anything that's going to get him in any sort of trouble whatsoever. And he just plays it very straight, which it, which is a bit of a shame. And you know it, it would be good to see him, um, you know, bring out a bit more of that personality. But you can totally understand uh, why he does it. I think that that's the thing with social media now that journalists. Would, used to sort of lead,
1: they would ask questions at press conferences and they go and report what had been said. Now, the tendency is a lot of journalists have to follow what players are putting out themselves, sports people are putting out themselves on social media. And for, for anything that's been said in a press conference, there could be something sort of bigger, just been said on Twitter, that then yeah. suddenly everyone has read and you've got to sort of react to. It, but you, you, you're not, you don't have any part
0: in that conversation, you're just sort of observing it, really. Well, I read a book by Neil Harmon, the tennis journalist, recently, and he was saying he almost doesn't bother with press conferences mm. now, that he would have enough. Of a relationship with the players that he'd collar them for a word on the way out of the press conference. Because, as he was pointing out, everything, you know, good or bad, even that's said in the press conference, ends up. You know, being you know, published online somewhere, you know, within moments of it happening. So mm. it's a very different environment now. You know, you compare that to to what we came into when it was all about newspapers, and you were still reading your copy over the phone. Yeah. I mean, you think about that. Yeah, know. You know, yeah. Uh, so yeah, to- totally different world in in that sense. Yeah, and I think you know, people. It's quite fashionable to sort of look look down your nose at
1: journalism, but I think we need it more than ever. Actually, Here <laughs> we look at look at the state of the world. A natural hard fact, you know, would would, yeah. would would be nice rather than just sort of endless. Opinion and speculation And those days where you did have The sort of the regular Crew going around. I mean In some ways it could be A little bit cosy maybe You know it was, a, it was a little bit of a clique, Which I was part of Very happily yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But also they would You know They would look after the players I mean there was a famous occasion And this is years ago now When Darren Morgan Lost to Dave Harold in the, in the Asian Open final, oh, yeah. and, and did what you were describing Immediately came in the press room And started to sort of Lambast everything Dave yeah. himself Everything And the journalist actually said to him Darren Why don't you go and take 10 minutes Mm. Calm down and come back in. Now, now, in another scenario, they could have just reported his sort of explosive comments and made him look really bad. But mm. actually, they were thinking, no, you know, we don't need this. Just go away, come back, calm down. And then I think he was still a little bit, you know, annoyed. But yeah. he calmed down a little bit. That wouldn't happen
0: in football, for example, would it? And it wouldn't happen nowadays in snooker. No. People would be sitting there salivating. <laughs> this is brilliant. Yeah. Darren Morgan was, you know, was very much a top mm. player at that time. Uh, but he loved, he loved to give out about the world. But it, it was just. You know, amusing as much as anything else. Um, some players, I think, you know, just have a very good attitude to it. They want to have something to say, but they're just not used to it. You got yeah. to remember, like a lot of these guys haven't even really had, you know, a full formal education. So it's very, very difficult for them. And you know, as well as that, some of them, you know, the, the kind of life they lead doesn't lend itself to to, to to great answers. Because I remember one player who I won't name because he was actually really good to deal with over the years. I was doing an interview with him when he was starting out and I'd been asked because it was for a magazine ask him a bit about his lifestyle and what he does outside of the game and he was really trying very very hard you know he's obviously just played a lot of snooker and eventually after about a minute of trying to make out that he had all these hobbies outside the game he said yeah but mostly I'm just down the pub <laughs> 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 which was almost yeah. certainly true yeah, you know? yeah, 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 so it's yeah. very difficult you know you get some players who have you know a good attitude it's not that they don't want to give anything but they find it very very difficult and mm. you know we're comfortable with the sort of media environment because you know we've spent mm. our working lives in it you got to remember yeah you know there's no reason why someone who's really good at playing snooker should be good yeah. at speaking to the media yeah. thankfully quite a few of them actually are
1: they have now there's a kind of media training scheme yeah um, I'm not quite sure exactly what that training is because um, I was sort of asked my opinion on it um, a couple of years ago and I'd seen the thing on Sky, there was a, a sort of behind-the-scenes thing on Sky, where uh, Sky Cricket, where they took some younger county cricket players, basically, to go to the pub with a load of cricket journalists. Mm. Just, I'm not saying they got drunk, but they just went and socialised with them, got to know them, like I was saying, like, pleasure to come in the press room. And to me, that's arguably more valuable than sitting someone down in front of a whiteboard and, oh. and telling you, OK, if they ask you this, say yeah. this, and, and don't give this away, and, and, and mind how you sit and all that. We don't want that, actually. No,
0: no, no, we definitely <laughs> don't. And, I mean, I'd say it's one of the few sports left now where you might actually have a drink with the players. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure over the years, you know, pretty much all the top players, you know, have you know, we've had a drink with them at one point or another. and you know, well, there's there's nothing... We've allowed them to buy us a drink. <laughs> we have, yeah, yeah. Well, look, they can afford it. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, that totally breaks down the barriers. Formal training, I, I don't know how much... How much value there actually is in that? I think it has a certain amount of value, but as you say, it can produce sort of formulaic answers. Mm. I remember, didn't we see some uh, sort of I don't know slideshow that had mm. been shown to young players, and uh, it said something about journalists being ego-driven and lazy. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, how <laughs> dare they suggest that about yeah. us? Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's shocking, yeah, shocking, shocking, shocking. So, yeah. so uh, sort of to conclude then, a player coming in, turning pro, bit of potential is going to be of interest to the media. What advice could we give them about dealing with the media? I
0: guess be yourself would be a a good way to start. Yeah, because you know what? If you're not going to be giving great answers and great statements, that's just who you are and it's not really going to change. And of course, certainly from our point of view, we want them to be themselves and to, mean, we want them to show their emotions, Mm. you know, and if they are greatly disappointed, then, you know, let's hear about it or at least show it in some way. And as you say, sometimes even things like the Trude incident or whatever. You know that can be that can be a better story, and I mean I remember one player, current top player, but when he was an amateur, I was covering an amateur event, big amateur event, and he lost in the deciding frame of the semi-final. I went up and said, "Can I have a word with you?" He nodded his head. I asked him one question. He started crying and walked <laughs> off. Now he he was only very young at the yeah. time, but uh, you know, if anything, you'd love it if that happened to a top mm. player. They'd probably be greatly embarrassed, but you know, and, and not because you would want to make them look bad or ridicule them or anything, yeah. but you know, it'd just be. Fantastic to see that sort of uh, level of emotion so yeah I suppose be yourself is the only thing I would say the best thing to do is n- almost not give them any advice mm. let them go in and as you say Paul Hunter who was so uncomfortable with it at the start but just by doing it and by doing interviews and warming to it I mean he became wonderful to deal with mm. uh, in his in his later and uh, and more successful years you must have though you know some really you know, bad story. I don't mean I don't mean reflecting a player in a bad light, but just about an interview or something that went badly wrong. <laughs>
1: to be honest, a lot of the problems I've had have been actually arranging the interview. Oh yeah. like, Because uh, one thing with snooker players is, if you say I'll meet you here at two, it'll be three probably. Well, That's what yeah. like they a lot. The long. following day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and just getting people to ring you back and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, there's been look, there's been down the years. Have been usually when someone's lost. You know, one thing I'll say about this podcast everyone who's been on this everyone who's been on this podcast has been has mm. just said yes no one's ever refused to come on I mean, haven't asked everyone in the game, obviously. Yeah, yeah, no one has yeah. ever refused to come on the podcast. You know, and you can just sidle up to a player and say, Will you come on and they'll do it and that's great that there's not that barrier, you've got to go through agents and managers. Um, yeah, I think it depends what mood they're in. Sometimes people are, are you know, have things going on that you don't know about off the table and that will affect their mood. But
0: I think you know when you, you know when to pick the moment. Yeah. And that, that is actually, I think we would both agree a key thing in arranging interviews mm. is, is pick the time to ask the player. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can see what kind of form they're in if they're chatting to the other players and joking. You you know, you're not going to say to them after they've lost five four in the black, "Do you mind, you know, doing a half hour interview tomorrow?" So, so you do learn to gauge these things. Well, one thing you know, I, I would have to say, uh, you know, when you've more foreign journalists now in the game and there can be a bit of a language barrier and they're also coming from a slightly different sort of media culture, you get some really really strange questions. Yeah. Like the night Stuart Bingham won the world championship, he was asked afterwards. Um, how do you figure out the angles yeah. for the shots? Is it through a formula of yeah. geometry? Yeah. Which was just the strangest thing. And Stuart actually handled it well. He said, I just couldn't honestly answer that <laughs> question. And I think the same journalist had asked Sean Murphy, who had just lost a fairly close world final and missed out on the chance of a second world title uh, ten years after his first, how would you have felt if you'd been playing a woman tonight? <laughs> I mean, it's just so yeah. strange, but it's just a very different media culture. It was all very sort of British-based mm. You know, when we were starting out. And uh, it's something that the players... Uh, have to get used to now in the modern game well in China as well in China um, you get some very strange
1: questions and also they're all translated so they take forever to to sort of come back and and Famously, when uh, when Ding won the China Open for the first time, he beat Ebden along the way, Peter Ebden. And the, the first question to Ebden, so it's 5 0 he's lost oh, to a yeah. young kid. And the first question was from this Chinese journalist, uh, Ebden, not Peter, mm. Ebden, how come you win World Championship? <laughs> and uh, to be fair to him, he handled it really well. I suppose you have to, really. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's funny. I mean, I think my advice to players, as I say, would be yourself and also understand that. Snooker journalists, uh, in particular, and journalists in general, they're looking for a story, and it, not necessarily a negative story. I've seen so many times where people have, have tried to sell a really good story about the game mm. that makes players look good. They don't always get in the papers because sports editors aren't always interested in that. But there's no, there's no real general agenda. You know, we're just trying to report the game.
0: Some people, non snooker specialist journalists, mm. can have a bit of an yeah. agenda. They come equipped with one. And I'll give you an example the World Championship in 2000, John Parrott, 12 8 up. Against Joe Swale in the last 16. Joe comes back to win 13 12, comes in talking about his recently departed mother and he was in tears and what it all meant to him to be in the world quarter final. John comes in, and I mean, John Parrott, like, you know, great to interview and would never want to be at the centre of any uh, controversy. So uh, he comes in. And uh, I think Joe had beaten him a few times over the previous couple of seasons. And he says, and in tribute to him, saying, great player, and he's been a real pain in the neck uh, to me over the last couple of seasons. Now, he didn't mean it in any sort of bad way, he just meant he keeps beating me. He was reported the following day in one of the papers as, you know, fighting behind the scenes, (laughs) you know, among the players, calling each other a pain in the neck. Um, so you've got to be wary of that sort of thing I mean that's, that's always been around mm-hmm. to some extent people like that have the agenda but I suppose if you're a specialist snooker journalist you don't want to fall foul of any oh. of the players and the thing is it's not just the player in question you'll fall foul of if you stitch him up because he'll talk to other players because they speak to each other so mm-hmm. much and you know you could really damage your future prospects for any sort of interviews and that and it's generally worked uh, pretty well over the years I think the relationship between you know the, the established snooker media and the players yeah,
1: and we'll, we'll end with Paul Hunter, who we began with. course yeah. famously, because he learned how to just be himself, actually, and had confidence to, to speak as himself, he ended up on the front page of a couple of newspapers mm. after the, he won the Masters for the first time with that, with that Plan B stuff. And that was just an example of not being media trained and not being told what to say, yeah. just being yourself. And, uh, you know, what, what a credit to the sport. Um, so that's it. That's, that's the media. And that's the end of this <laughs> podcast. Thanks for listening.